Sources, great interview with Bowdrin Barry and Lou. Barry, it's time for us to uh, to rock and or roll. Either one, it's your choice. Are you ready to go again, my friend? Wait, whoa, whoa, what, what, this is this is the opening. What's going on right now? What's- well, you know, I'll throw you a curveball every once in a while. On this particular episode right. of Breaking Kayfabe, Barry, we are going literally into a time tunnel because we have the oldest match we have ever reviewed on this what? show on this particular episode. We are going to March 28th, 19, 1962. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe young Barry Rose had been conceived yet much less born no they weren't even thinking about me at that stage well you know they've always uh always tried to put you away and, and you know never give you credit so but yeah no young barry rose had not been born yet so uh we are going to freddie blassie the hollywood fashion plate classy freddie blassie taking on ricky dozan for the old wwa title so uh, I think that's going to be kind of interesting. We had a lot of fun looking at that. Besides that, Barry, oh, a little concert review. Oh. As the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin and I, oh, we went out and rock and roll the other night. And I'll give you the details on that. A little Florida man or not. We're also going to be having a fun interview with friend of the show, Sean Davis. Sean was the promoter of the local independent group that we went and saw when we were all in Lutz. About 40 to 50 of the uh, guys that were at the Fan Fest went to the show and it was tremendous fun. And we talked to Sean about some of the struggles about being a local independent promoter, especially during the pandemic, uh, coming out of the pandemic, and some of the things that he does as a promoter to, uh, number one, assist young guys uh, and gals just getting into the wrestling business, helping uh, show them the way to uh, hopefully future success. And I think it's a pretty interesting discussion. Uh, besides all that, we are going to be, oh, I'm going to give you a little quick TV show review. It's something I texted Mr. Rose about that I think he's going to be very interested. Before we start, Barry, I want to give a special shout out and welcome to a new listener. So, Barry, I'm at therapy the other day. I told you uh, off air, I had a little problem with the hip area, uh, you know, getting cranky uh, and creaky and old and stuff like that. So, I was doing therapy. And the lady that usually uh, does my therapy has to step away for a second. She asked her assistant, uh, Robert, she says, can you come over and, uh, and help him out and just uh, show him which exercises to do next? So Robert comes up and says, oh, I, uh, I heard about your, uh, your podcast. Uh, I, I like wrestling, too. So we sit there and we start chit-chatting. So he tells me that his uncle, Jerry Garza, old-school wrestling fan, big fan of the Von Erics. So, uh, Barry, round of applause for Jerry. You want to welcome him? to the listenership. Jerry, welcome. Welcome. And uh, be careful what you wish for, my friend, uh, as far as getting around the brothership and the people uh, in that lane. So, and also to his nephew, Robert Pena, uh, who's also a, a loyal listener. We really appreciate that. So, Barry, before we get started on the wrestling, let's talk a little concert action. So, back Christmas time, my daughter Kelly got her mom some concert tickets uh, up here, we're talking Sticks, Ario Speedwagon, and Lover Boy. Yes, Mike Reno, not wearing the red leather pants. I'm happy to say, because quite frankly, he's around 60. Nobody needs to see that anymore. So we went first concert, Barry. Three years, Barry Rose. When is the last concert you went to? Oh, the last concert I went to was. Should I feel like I was just at a concert? I saw Martin Barr from Jethro Tull. I guess about six, eight weeks ago. You paid for that, did you? I, anyway. I was. That was a 
a pri- this was pretty cool. We really didn't talk about this on the show. This was a private event run by the former owner of Ring of Honor, Kerry Silken. Kerry is a lifelong Jethro Tull fan, and I guess it's their 50th anniversary, maybe of Aqualung. And he threw a birthday party with somebody else, and they paid for the band to come over. Really, it's the band with the exception of Ian Anderson, who is the lead singer. So really interesting, but that was the last concert I went to, Jeff. No offense, Jethro Tull, one of those acts, they come on the radio and I'm immediately hitting the, uh, the change channel. Oh my God. I, I and I just, I, and I know they're really popular. They've been around, like you said, for 50 fucking years. So there's certainly got some staying power, but I just never got it. But anyway, on that note, I will tell you. So my daughter gets her mom, the tickets to the concert. It's our first concert since we went to see ELO in South Florida, three stinking years ago. Uh, it covers the, uh, the cancer diagnosis and recovery, knock on wood, uh, the pandemic and all that. So we go to this concert and it's at a, uh, an outside amphitheater, but it's a covered amphitheater. Thank God, because you know, it was like 95 degrees when we're going to the concert, we're thinking we're going to just be sweating our asses off. An hour before the show, sudden rainstorm hits, temperature drops 20 degrees. We go under there. There's large fans uh, in the covering. So we're basically sitting there 75 degrees with a nice breeze, you know? So it was uh, very cool to see that. So a couple notes about the show. I was talking uh, before you joined us, Barry, with Lou, and I said, basically, everybody that my wife and I went to high school, it was like they showed up at a concert. Sure. Because- there was, with the exception of a couple people that brought their kids, everybody like between 55 and 65 years old. It was like the oldest concert crowd for like, you know, like maybe other than like when Frank Sinatra was playing at the Sunrise Musical Theater. You know, it was like, where are the all old people and the women, of course, who are like late 50s into their 60s, apparently still thinking they're teenagers showing up with the hot pants and the bikini tops. And some Dunlop syndrome going on, Barry. It was not a pretty sight. Was that the case at the Jethro Tull concert? No. It, well, I mean, age-wise, yes, but we didn't get any. I didn't see any Dunlops, so yeah. the, I'm happy. There, there was that. more than a few Dunlops. I, I call this the the grandpas of rock tour. So, but interestingly enough, four hour plus concert, Barry. You know, there you go. I mean, you you took a couple ten minute breaks as the bands changed out and stuff like that. But I was like, man, four hours. I don't know what my daughter paid for these tickets for her mom, but hell, that's a four-hour concert. You're getting your money's worth, you know? So, And by the way, 11,500 people to see a bunch of bands that haven't had a hit record in 35, 40 years. That's pretty impressive in my book. You know, I know there are other people that maybe don't always listen to the show that like going to uh, concerts with bands like, uh, you know, uh, Billy and the, and the bum fuckers. Uh, and there's 10 people in the audience and you're like, well, I'm so cool because I, I was there. Yeah, well, anyway, so, all right. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. And it's not McAdam, by the way, just in case anyone's there. There's another what? guy that likes to uh, get into the obscure records. I'll just mention that. So, uh, but Barry, now it is time for us to go back before Barry Rose was born. Let's talk a little Ricky Dozan versus Fred Blassie. Very time once again for our match of the week. Barry Rose, I think I can safely say in 246 episodes, this is the oldest match we've ever done. What do you think? I think what what was the second? Was it the giant Baba F- Walsh? Fritz von Eric. Fritz von Eric match. Yeah, right. that was from like 68, something like this. 
This week, we are going to the venerable LA Olympic Auditorium. We spoke about that recently. We are going March 28th, 1962, for God's sakes. Ricky Dozan taking on the Hollywood fashion plate. Classy Freddie Blassie. Barry, tell the folks what you thought about this match. So I, I really like this match a lot. And there's a couple of reasons, too. And this is, you know, this is over 60 years old. So first off, the fact that this has been preserved and we're able to actually see it is great. What I think is really cool, and much like you, Jeff, I used to watch wrestling from the Olympic, Lucha Libre, when we lived in South Florida. And this goes back to, like, the mid to late 70s. And even though this match is 1962, Still some 15 years later, the same cast of characters in a lot of ways. The referee, Johnny Red Shoes Dugan. The, the announcer, Dick Dick Lane. The ring announcer, Jimmy Lennon. It's like, and they're all old in this video as well. So it, I thought that was kind of cool. But this was a lot of fun. And uh, I don't think I had ever seen Blassie at his, I'll say this was his peak. And I don't know, but I'm assuming this is right around his peak, not too far off. And I don't think I had ever seen him at his peak before. The only Blassie I had seen was either some 10 years later in Los Angeles or stuff he was doing 10 years later in the WWF. There's the handheld footage that's out there. And at that stage, I don't know how old Fred was, but he certainly looked and moved like an old man. In this match, he doesn't. And one of the knocks on Blassie, which I, I remember reading from either the smart magazines or newsletters, was Blassie was never a good wrestler, right? That's what they would all say, that Blassie was known for uh, punching, kicking, biting, but he really didn't do a lot and rarely left his feet. I think we see a lot more. And yeah, there's a lot of punching and kicking and biting, especially the biting. But at the same time, the strength of Fred Blassie is the psychology and understanding what's going to get the crowd riled up because he's literally, this is the match, you know, we've, uh, we, we've been talking to promoters, Jeff, and, and, you know, people that are training people and, uh, Sean Davis, great example, you know, training, this is a match that you should watch if you're a heel. Like this is, you want to be able to see exactly what Blassie's doing. It may be 60 years ago, but it's relevant to what, what's happening today because the heat in this match, I think is fantastic. Ricky Dozan too. I don't think I've ever gotten a really good look good. Uh, you know, it's certainly, I think at the forefront considered the godfather, uh, of Japanese wrestling or even the father of Japanese wrestling. But at the same time, this to me in a lot of ways is the Blassie show because he's really spectacular here. So, uh, to me, when I watch this match, you were talking about Ricky Dozan, uh, reminds me of, oh, I'm drawing complete breath, the Stone Cold uh, Pitbull guy. Uh, oh, God, I can't remember his name. Uh, but I, I don't mean like that's his style. Oh, Ishii? Yeah, Ishii. Uh, yeah. I mean, just standing there, that's what he looks like. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a very uh, a good, solid physique. A uh, very solid-looking guy, you know, and uh, just you know, I'm not saying he wrestles like uh, Ishii, uh, but he's standing there. He kind of looks like him. It's interesting to me because you know, compared to the Piper Guerrero match, let's be honest, the audience is completely different because this does not look like. Uh, and you know, I'm just guessing here, but the crowd 
in the front rows are uh, you know people wearing suits. It, it, dare I say, it looks like a, an extremely white population. It doesn't look like there's a lot of Hispanics there, like there were for Chavo uh, and uh, and Piper. Uh, there's a you know the people you know older women are there, uh, very much like old school wrestling crowds. I guess is the best way of putting it. You know, and the, you know the uh, there's a couple of times where Blassie does some kind of underhanded stuff, and you see uh, the women, the older women that are sitting ringside, actually kind of try to reach up into the ring to to grab Fred <laughs> because he's doing these dastardly things. And the crowd, as much as I enjoyed the match for his old school psychology. I enjoyed watching the crowd because you're right. They were losing their freaking minds, you know, yeah. um, and what Blassie is doing for today, comparatively speaking, is really not that much. But for then, you know, the, the fact and here's the other amazing thing, Barry, and I hate to I hate to say this, but, you know, this was 17 years after World War Two, you know, and maybe maybe even 16, uh, you know, when. uh Let's be honest, the Japanese were not very highly regarded, uh, especially, you know, like on the West Coast, where, you know, the closest to Japan. And it's interesting to listen to Dick Lane put over Ricky Dozan, like as this gentleman, you know, oh, no, he doesn't want to, you know, Blassie is in the corner. He's being a gentleman about this. He doesn't want to go in and take advantage of of Blassie and, you know, in this disadvantaged position. And I just... I found that really interesting that here, you know, and I, and I tried to think about it. Imagine if around 2016, Vince had tried to make an Iraqi wrestler into a baby face. How would that have gone over 15 years after 9-11? I'm just, you know, maybe I'm comparing X's and O's, apples and oranges. But I thought the way that they tried to put Ricky Dozan over as a baby face was really compelling, Bear. Yeah, well, and it was too. And it, this is what I found interesting about this as well is that there, there's not a heavy. It doesn't appear to be a heavy Japanese population there. So it, in, it kind of makes you wonder why, um, you know. And but maybe the buildup. Maybe they had been, you know, talking about the biggest wrestling star in all of Japan. Maybe the world will be coming to the Olympic in a few weeks or something like that. It does seem a little odd because you're, you know. It, we saw it in in Florida, you know, that it, let's say when we had a, a very large Haitian population, all of a sudden, uh, Dusty Rhodes was not the big star in Florida. Granted, he had left and gone to Crockett, but they didn't replace him with a uh, somebody similar. They replaced him with Tyree Pride, who was maybe 165, 170 pounds and literally was getting main events, as you know, wrestled Ric Flair on Miami Beach. And I got it, to win the belt for my people. It got to win the belt for my people. And as it turns out, you know, that, that I think a lot of ways was the kiss of death for CWF. But, you know, you are going to look out at your audience and you're OK. Who's going to appeal to your audience? That that seems to me simple math on that one. With that, I don't see any Japanese people in the audience. So that's kind of an odd choice. And, you know, obviously uh, I'm not I'm not 100 percent positive, but, you know, there was a very famous match. Uh, that really uh, in the magazines uh, that was, you know, sent over to the Japanese magazines that really uh, cemented Freddie Blassie for life in Japan. And right. I'm not sure if it was this match or another match between the two where, you know, because in this match, Ricky Dozan gets color and, you know, and Blassie, of course, is, you know, doing the, you know, the gouging at the wound and stuff like that. 
And maybe to the Japanese fans that read about this match in the magazine, that was completely horrifying. You know, oh, my God. Uh, because, you know, I've, I've read stories. I have no idea if they're true or not that supposedly when Blassie was over there, uh, one of his matches, there are stories about people that had had heart attacks watching the match because, you know, Blassie was such a villain. Uh, and, you know, let's be honest, these people watching this match, Barry, they believed what was going on in the ring. And I just thought it was very compelling. Uh, the match itself, as you watch it, uh, you know, it's not a match from 2022. It, like Barry said, it's a 60-year-old match. So you're not going to see a lot of the stuff that you see in matches today. But the psychology that Blassie is working with, the way he manipulates the crowd uh, you know, to react to what he's doing, and the way that the announcer is, you know, and, and he, uh, Ricky Dozan comes to the ring and he's got the traditional uh, robe on, and he's got a corner man who is responsible for speaking English. And this match, I believe, was for the WWA title which was like basically the West coast version of the world title and uh spoiler alert, 60 years later, Ricky Dozan wins the belt. And I think it was one of these cases of putting him over to create a big deal in Japan, uh, give him a run with the title, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we had the opportunity to talk to Fumi Saito on one of our Patreon episodes. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, why aren't you for $5, Barry? Uh, Only $5. That's it. Uh, less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. That's right. And, uh, but Fumi Saito very clearly spelled out the impact that Ricky Dozan had on wrestling in the uh, in Japan. And, you know, the, the impact that he had. And, you know, now that I was thinking about... Uh, as we were going to talk about this match today, Barry, I think one of the questions that was probably left unsaid by us to Fumi is what potential, because of course, Ricky Dozan's death resulted in the rise of Inoki and Baba. So what would have happened if Ricky Dozan hadn't been killed? If Ricky Dozan had lived, well, let's just say for another 10 years, how would that have impacted the direction of the giant Baba's career and Antonio Inoki's career? I think that would have been like an interesting theoretical question uh, excellent use of the word theoretical. Behavior. Absolutely. Yes. And, so, and you're and you're right about that as well. And I, I think and uh, it's just such a, a wealth of knowledge. But the one thing that when we were talking about it that I kept missing out is he, he was kind of telling me that I'm focusing too much on the guy who killed Ricky Dozan. And it was for me, it, it, I was trying to. So here was the arguably the biggest sports star in the entire country. He's been murdered by, according to Fumi, a low-level Yakuza, not a main guy. Wouldn't the rest of the Yakuza have been very upset at this guy because he just killed the cash cow? Like that, that's really what I was trying to convey. And I would still love to hear the answer because, it, you know, if Ricky Dozan was tied into the Yakuza to some degree and had been responsible for all of this revenue – and then this low-level thug comes and kills him. You know, wouldn't the thug be public enemy number one at that point? Yeah, and you know the thing is, is Ricky Dozan is not a guy that you can uh, put quotation marks around and say wrestler. You're right. He was not just a wrestler to the people of Japan at this point. He was literally their biggest sports star. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, 
Steph Curry, Tom Brady, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of the, who the biggest baseball player is, uh, uh, you know, Mike Trout, uh, somebody like that, or, or Aaron Judge, one of those, you know, guys plays for the Yankees, uh, you know, that kind of level of sports are, and I'm probably not even giving him enough credit because uh, in terms of wrestling, probably the way that Bruno San Martino was regarded, like just in the Northeast. Sure. That's the way that Ricky Dozan was regarded in the entire country of Japan. And you have to understand also the other factors are the fact that, uh, you know, after the war uh, in the uh, mid 40s, Japan was just devastated. Ricky Dozan emerged from that and basically, I think, in a lot of ways, told the Japanese people, it's okay to feel good about yourselves. And then, you know, he had the rivalry with, uh, you know, the. it's like Cowboys and Indians. Ricky Dozan was the Cowboy and the Americans coming in were the Indians. They were, you know, they were the heels. And so, you know, when Ricky Dozan would defeat, uh, you know, a Freddie Blassie or or somebody like that, uh, it was the Japanese people beating the Americans who had defeated them in the war. And so it enabled the Japanese people to feel good about themselves. And it's really hard to quantify, you know, I, I've read uh, Dave Meltzer has talked about it in The Observer when someone has asked him. Uh, you know, uh, the way that El Santo was regarded as like a na- he wasn't just a wrestler in Mexico. He was a national right. hero. And yep. that's the way that Ricky Dozan really yep. was in Japan. 100 percent. And that's that's where you nailed it. He's kind of what in some ways maybe Hulk Hogan was in that second half of the 80s. You know, I wouldn't I don't know if I'd put him in the 90s in the same category, though, maybe. But he he transcended, you know, guys like uh, Gorgeous George going back to the 50s, you know, I, I Andre think- the Giant. But to your point, I'm going to disagree with you. I I think he's bigger than than uh, Hogan. And that's exactly what I was just going to say to you. I think of all the names you've mentioned, I think he was bigger. And and it was probably it's going to be hard for us to to quantify Gorgeous George. But at the same time, I I don't think Gorge. I think he was still looked at as a wrestler, which was, uh, you know, there's still people snickering. I don't think they're snickering when it comes to Ricky Dozan at at that stage. Yeah, he was, um, you know, as I try to put into uh, create a picture of how big he was, I, I think he transcended being a wrestler. I, I think yep. he was more of a sports star. And and the way that, you know, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, whenever Gorgeous George's prime was, and people had just been exposed to television, and Gorgeous George Everybody was a name like when you say, oh, do you watch wrestling? Oh, what do you mean? Like Gorgeous George? That's what right. people thought of. And when you said, uh, you know, do you know who Ricky Dozan is to the uh, average person in Japan? Absolutely. They knew who Ricky Dozan was. And and uh, I remember uh, when I was over in Japan with Dave uh, Meltzer, there was a funny story that he told about how he was talking to someone and consider this is 1987. OK. And he said, if you go, he went up to a, a Japanese person and said, do you know who Joe Montana was? And they like, no, I, we, we don't know. Uh, do you know who Abdullah the Butcher is? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's just you know, that that sort of thing where, uh, you know, the sport uh, of wrestling sometimes transcends just being, quote unquote, wrestling. And it becomes a larger than life uh, thing. And, you know, in 1987, that was like when Joe Montana was at, you know, the peak of his popularity and the peak of his career. And so to put that in perspective, you know, with uh, that, that he wasn't as well known in Japan as, uh, as Abdullah the Butcher, that's, you know, even more so was the way that Ricky Dozan was regarded by the Japanese people. We are going to post a link to this uh, 
video and this match in our group, uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin Barry, I urge you to uh, give it a look. I do want to mention one last thing, Barry. After the match is over, uh, there is a a promo that's done by uh, by Blassie after he's lost his title and he's, of course, outraged. And he comes up, uh, I told you about this last night, uh, uh, comes up with a great line where he said, this is a complete outrage. I'm going to appeal this to the highest authority. I'm going to call my good friend, President Kennedy, uh, and uh, ask him to look into the situation. And it, it's just kind of funny uh, hearing someone say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my good friend, President Kennedy, and <laughs> have him look into the situation. So uh, I urge you to watch this. I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, keep an eye on the crowd in the first few rows and just the way they are completely invested. And I don't mean completely invested in a professional wrestling way. I mean, completely invested. Like they think this is 100% on the level and there's no, uh, nobody doing any high spots, nobody holding any signs, nobody yelling at the heel, uh, you know, in favor of the heel, because quite frankly, back then, if they had, they probably would have got their ass kicked by the people in the audience. And, uh, so yeah, Fred Blassie went out there completely used psychology to manipulate these people that were watching uh, this match. And it's really awesome to see. So I hope you'll check this match out. Barry, fun match to talk about now. Barry Rose, it has been a hot moment. Why don't we do a little Florida man or not? And Barry Rose, as a late surprise for you, I have one additional story I'd like to offer you. Are you ready? Because Barry, this was a shout out to our good friend, Frankie Seacrest. This is the first time we've ever done Barry Rose, Florida dog. (laughs) Are you ready? No. How can I be ready for this? Of course. Yes. A home went up in flames (laughs) when a dog accidentally pawed the touch controls of a stovetop burner and sparked a fire. Barry, does uh, Ozzy have that kind of capability? He does not have that kind Thankfully of Thankfully not, yes. So uh, uh, wire services were told that the dog put its paws on the cooktop, activated the touch controls, igniting a pan that had leftovers in it. Fire crews rescued two dogs from the home and extinguished the flames. There were no injuries in the blaze, which is, of course, why we tell this story. Because, of course, if there had been any deaths or fatalities, it's not an appropriate story. But since there were no deaths, Barry Rose. Do you think this happened in Florida or not? Wow. So Florida dog or not? Do do we know the dog's name? Unfortunately, that was not listed because that's an Uh, important key element. You are right. So Frankie, come on, do some research. Come on, Frankie. If you're going to get in the game, I need to know the dog's name and the breed even. Ah, Tough one because I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say this was a very intelligent dog. This dog, this would have occurred in New York State. Parkville, Missouri, the show-me state, and apparently the dog decided to show him. Yes. Very time for a quick edition of Florida Man or Not. I only have two stories this week. I hope I'm not letting you down. I, You know, I, I get excited, especially when I hear that it's three or four, but even two is better than zero, Jeff. So That's bring it true. On. The headline, Barry... From our friends at the New York Post, my ex broke my heart, so I sliced off my arm tattoo and mailed it to him. Wow. This scorned lover is forever scarred. Tors, T-O-R-Z. Reynolds, a 35-year-old tattoo and body modification addict, drastically cut off a chunk of her own arm where her then boyfriend's name was tattooed after he cheated on it. Barry, it's another story about men cheating. We had one just last week. She thought that chopping off her limb that was inscribed with her ex's name was quicker than lasering it off. 
Reynolds then went the extra mile and mailed the piece of tattooed flesh to her ex-man. Years ago, I cut off that tattoo of my ex's name and sent it back to him in the mail, she told Jam Press. He had been a naughty boy and cheated on me, so obviously I wasn't going to keep his name anymore. I opted to cut it it out purely because I'd already done skin removal before. I know it didn't hurt. Oh, my God. She knew it didn't hurt that much. And it was quicker than a laser session, which is a bit of a long game. So Barry Rose, Florida woman or not. So she sounds like some sort of genius here. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. So instead of going to a tattoo artist and getting it covered up and removed laser surgery, Adjusted. I'll just take a knife. A modified, yeah. you know, some way. Yeah. yeah, I'll just take a knife and slice it off my body. There are better ways to do and this. And then mail it to them. Yeah, so she may not be the most uh, stable person on the face of the <laughs> earth. Certainly this would qualify her to be in the state of Florida. <laughs> this would this would qualify her to be extremely popular in the state of Florida. With that, I am going to say this did not take place in Florida. I don't know where this took place, though. <laughs> but it did take place in Florida. Herefordshire, England. Uh, there, there you go. We're going we're to have to check with John Lee to see if that's anywhere near him. I don't know. Next story, Barry. The headline reads, Woman charged with felony after spitting on corpse in a casket at a funeral home. Wow. Woman was charged with fel- a felony after spitting on a corpse at a funeral home during a, during a viewing. Wow. There's some anger there, Barry. According to a arrest affidavit, Lori Lynn Hines, 51, walked into a funeral home, walked straight up to the casket and spit on the corpse. Witness on scene said Hines had animosity towards the van. Oh, she had animosity. Yeah, there's oh, a, go figure. Yeah, yeah, really. There's a big reveal, huh? So she was arrested and charged uh, state felony abuse of a corpse. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not. Do we know why she spit on this corpse? animosity towards the family so that's you know, all we have okay let's okay. not deal with it with the people still living let's go take it out on the corpse oh which is just i mean that that's a bad look whatever this is this is literally be, stepping one step above pissing on your grave bear th- this is and uh this is akin to slicing off tattoos with a knife and then mailing yeah this is crazy uh I'm going to say not Florida. I'm going to say this is England as well. I think you're pulling an all English uh, swerve on this one. This will be England as well. Barry, you're going to cause me to not give you full credit because this is not England. Tyler, Texas. Oh, all right. Shout out to our listeners in Tyler, Texas. Barry, always a good time talking Florida man or not. Now let's go to our interview with our friend Sean Davis discussing a little Florida independent action. So, Barry, we were speaking about uh, our time at the FanFest in Lutz, and one of the certain, certainly the highlights of our, our weekend in Lutz was our chance to go uh, see the local independent group that's promoted by our friend Sean Davis. And joining us, hey, how's that, Barry, uh, for a nice segue? Wow. It's, our friend, it's our friend Sean Davis. Sean, my man, how you doing? Hey, guys, I'm doing great. I'm still here in a warm and sticky uh, Tampa Bay today. It's like 93 or 94 out, and... Uh, Good air conditioning weather, put it that way. Barry, Sean's just said that he's sticky. I hope he hasn't been doing anything, you know, like. Oh, uh, what we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking about a guy that damaged his lungs doing stuff that involves a sticky business. But anyway, one of the things we wanted to talk to Sean about, uh, first of all, we wanted to talk about the show itself. But 
Sean, right away, tell me as a promoter, there has to have been obvious uh, difficulties, uh, problems uh, with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, uh, how did this affect you? Because, you know, as it stands now, you know, we went to the show last week. I, I've seen mm-hmm. on your Facebook page that you've got another show coming up next week. So how, first of all, how often did you run before the pandemic? How often did you run during the pandemic, if at all? And are you back now to what you were before the, the pandemic? Well, on the promoting end of things, honestly, I um, I really just recently got involved personally in being the, you know, the promoting end as far as um, the company itself is the World Wrestling Network that's uh, owned by Sal Hamoy and uh, Trevin Adams. And um, they, um, your listeners probably be familiar with Evolve. Evolve was like a feeding system for the WWE, for basically NXT uh, and WWE. And um, things were rolling along fantastic. So I was just pretty much a, a talent at that point, uh, working for the company and, you know, helping out behind the scenes wherever I could, you know, with the booking and things like that. Um, the pandemic was an absolute catastrophe uh, for our company, WWN. Um, it just it's actually a miracle that we're back up and running and going back to full cylinders because um you know, Evolve was uh, was the bread and butter of the company, and um, you know, the basically the rug just got completely pulled out from under from under all the plans that they had going forward. There were, you know, stuff I probably can't get into for legal reasons, but there were really, really big, big plans ahead with with the uh, you know the big international company that we were affiliated with, and that all you know just went down the tubes and. There was just a lot of problems. And, you know, during the pandemic itself, that's when I really uh, started helping out more behind the scenes and trying to get um, shows booked again, uh, finding facilities. And it was it was a rough, uh, rough patch there as far as, you know, we we put on a couple of events where, um, you know, mask. We tried to adhere to all of the, you know, the mandates and social distancing, yet we still had mass breakouts of COVID coming out of at least one event. It's not even funny. Like we, um, you know, I, I know personally of at least two deaths that happened um, from people involved in our organization from COVID. And it was just, it was just a horrible, horrible time, you know, and um, we're still basically in the rebuilding phase, you know, but my involvement more came about a year ago I started working on um, finding new venues for WWN uh, for FIP, which is our flagship company, Full Impact Pro Wrestling. And we started running at the uh, OCC Roadhouse Event Center in Clearwater, which is a big, big facility. It's tied in with the um, Orange County Choppers. I'm sure everybody's familiar with them. And uh, we started running about a year ago, and shows started going really well. And we're running monthly there now fip runs one month and then shine which is our all women's organization runs the next month so we go back and forth and i guess it's been about maybe three or four months ago where sal and i got together and he told me that he was going to be reopening the um training center the world wrestling network training center and he wanted my help with setting up uh weekly shows wherever we were going to launch the new facility and to handle the booking along with um, with Trevin. 
And um, we're about, oh boy, about three months into it now. We run every single Friday night, and um, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it can be a little crazy. I think I'm, my, my hair is, is thinning a little bit at this point, more than what it was. Uh, but we're having a blast, man. And, uh, you know, I'd say the highlight so far, and I'm not just saying this, the highlight so far really has, really was having you guys out there last week. I mean, it was just, uh, personally for me, it, it meant so much that you guys came out and you supported us. And, uh, you know, Barry, Jeff, all you guys, Bobby, Van Clear, you know, all the guys that come out, Harold, Strasler, you guys have all become friends of mine over the last few years. And it just, it just meant a lot for my friends to be there to, to see what we're doing and to support what we're doing. Well, and I mentioned this to Jeff, too, and I, I know that you and I spoke after the show, but that was probably the most fun I have had at a live wrestling event in, uh, I'll say years, if not decades. It was really <laughs> Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that to me is, is key. You know, somebody said to me, well, how many, you know, what, how would you rate the matches? Were these five-star matches? And I said, it's not the point. The point was when you walk into a building and you have a great time and you leave and you say, shit, I wish I could go back next Friday. And I wish I could go back every week because I had so much fun. That's the experience that you're looking for as a wrestling fan. And I know that Jeff and I, Definitely want to talk about that show, but quick question too. What was the transition like for you? You were a very successful professional wrestler. You worked throughout independence all throughout the country over in Puerto Rico. So you had, you had a really great career going. You were part of a great tag team. What was the transition like being a successful professional wrestler now becoming a trainer, but a very involved hands-on trainer? Yeah, well, and, I'll, and I'll say to you, that actually, the head trainer at Training Center, because I don't want to step on my toes, is Francisco Chiazzo, who you know from the Journeyman uh, uh, movie, right? Yep. Um, so he, he's and the he worked, he worked the show as a, as a manager. Yes, yes. And he's the official head trainer, and uh, he's actually the guy that gets in there with our brand-new students and, um, you know, shows them the ropes, so to say, and... Um, I get in there once in a while, but I get blown up really fast when I'm actually in the ring now trying to do anything. So <laughs> I'm better standing outside and just kind of coaching from a distance. But my coaching comes more on the night of the show as far as um, and I'll get to the, the details of your question. But really how we run the Friday night shows, which I think I've actually never seen. You know, this is my 25th year in wrestling. And I've never been a part of a, of a group that does it exactly like we're doing. And I'm not saying that, you know, we've uh, broken ground. There may be other groups that do this, but we take each show as a big learning session. Basically, we get the guys there about two hours before the show start. We start going over what they're going to do for the night, what the expectations are, and then we start going over, you know, their, their um, areas that they need to improve, things for them to work on. And I'll actually give them homework throughout the week. I'll say, look, you know, you really need to work on, you know, being a better, you know, heel. I'm going to send you three or four, you know, matches of Tully Blanchard from 1985 that I want you to watch, you know. And then I'll actually quiz them on the show. I'll be like, 
oh, did you watch that match? Yeah, 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 I watched it. Okay, so what happened, you know, at this part of the match? You know, who interfered? You know, I'll test them to see if they're BSing me or not, you know. And most of them are really good, man. I've been so impressed that they actually do watch the matches. They take stuff away from, from them. And then they're proud. They're like these little, you know, little excited kids that they'll be like, hey, Sean, did you see I did the slingshot suplex of that match just like Tully Blanchard, you know? And I'm just like a proud papa. You're like, wow, these kids are actually learning and, you know, putting to work what they're, what they're learning. So we do that. Then we actually do the show. And then after the show, we have about an hour to 90 minute after session where we critique all of the matches. And sometimes we'll actually get back in the ring and actually start showing, um, showing the kids how to do different things that we thought they were maybe missing in their match. So it's a long night. It's a long day. And it's like this just big time learning session. And, but it, it's so much fun. It's, it's an absolute blast. And I think the kids are improving every single week, which is what I'm getting out of this. You know, I'm certainly not getting rich doing this. And, um, well, that, that actually that pride, that, that pride of watching my, the kids. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt that. That actually leads to my no, next no. question. Do you find, uh, with what you're trying to get done here, is it more like getting these kids some experience that can take them to different places and, you know, maybe bigger promotions or, yeah, you know, let's face it. Every promoter wants to make a little bit of money. Uh, you know, sure. Are, are you, uh, you happier when you have a nice house? Or when something happened where you really saw some kid or maybe more than one kid starting to break through to, the, to that next level? No, that's totally what it's about for me. I would say, you know, with the business end, you know, Sal is much happier when he's <laughs> well, poor, yeah. poor paid tickets at the, you know, for me, like I said, you know, I'm not doing this for, you know, I know it's a cliche. I'm not doing this for the money. There was a time where I was definitely trying to do it for the money, you know, back to, to Bar uh, Barry's question earlier. So my transition. So when I first got into wrestling, you know, I was went to wrestling school in um, 1996, uh, end of 96, had my first match in 97 and promoted my first show in 1998. So I literally had a year under me when I first started promoting my own shows here in Florida. And uh, it mainly was because me and my friends sucked so bad, we couldn't get booked anywhere else. So we decided to put on our own shows, which is <laughs> <laughs> like- that's, that's one way to get yourself booked, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I started learning the promoting end of things, you know, very, very early on. I was, you know, 21 years old having my first, um, book promoting and booking my first shows. Um, but I was always fascinated with the booking end of the business. I was that weird kid who, you know, had a, a, a pile of notepads with my AWA Remco figures. And I would book my own cards every week and write out angles and stuff. And, you know, that's probably why I didn't have a girlfriend until I was in my twenties, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> you know, I was, that, I was that weird kid that was obsessed with that end of the business. So, you know, I got involved with that pretty early and actually had some, a lot of success. I mean, not a lot of success, but we did pretty good when I was in my twenties, as far as I ran a lot of sold shows. So I put some money in my pocket that way. And uh, we actually had a local TV here in Florida for about a year. Um, real late night, it was like two in the morning, but still, you know, it was, it was something we were really proud of. And then my, my actual in-ring career took off with my tag team partner we were the heartbreak express and 
Um, honestly, it was from working with Sal because Sal had the connection. The company was Full Impact Pro Wrestling, which is still our flagship company. But at the time, it was the sister promotion for Ring of Honor. So Gabe Sapolsky of uh, Ring of Honor came in. He was actually the booker of FIP. And um, so a lot of us ended up started going, um, going up to Ring of Honor on a regular basis. So Phil and I wrestled in you know, New York and Philadelphia and, and different places up north for Ring of Honor. And that got us, so we started catching on internationally. And pretty soon we were wrestling in Europe and uh, Central America. And uh, we um, wrestled in Japan, uh, Puerto Rico. We had a nice run for a while. And um, then, you know, as I started getting a little bit older, the injuries started mounting up pretty quick. I always thought I was going to be Terry Funk and wrestle till I was in my seventies. And, you know, about 39, I realized that wasn't going to happen. You know, it was like, no, this isn't gonna, you know, my body started breaking down and that's when I started doing the manager gimmick. I had a lot of success with that. And, but honestly doing the booking now for, for WWE Improving Ground and the promoting end of things, I feel so it's such a natural transition because it's something I've, that's really been the area of the business I've always been most fascinated with. And I just love it, man. I just absolutely love it. And as far as the money goes, yeah, we hope the money's going to come. But right now, uh, back to Jeff's question, developing these kids and seeing them just grow by leaps and bounds. There was a few kids that were on the show Friday night that I swear to God, two months ago, I mean, they barely could make it into the ring without tripping all over themselves. And I mean, they were just hard. I mean, yeah, honestly, they were horrible a couple months ago. And to see them progress so much in a couple months, just it absolutely blows my mind, to be honest with you. I can't believe some of these kids, how much they've improved in a short amount of time. And that and that that's so key with an independent promotion, as well as being able to to see something that's measurable on a weekly basis when people are improving out of the current roster that you have, or at least the guys that we saw on Friday night, there was somebody in my head that I was going, there were actually a couple of guys that I'm going, I, I see a lot of potential here. I see that these guys could yeah. easily wind up on a main roster somewhere. Who, who do you think, who do you think currently is developing either quickly enough or just understanding the business. And Jeff and I always talk about it. You know, to me, the psychology of professional wrestling is the most important thing. Understanding. Exactly. Yeah. And understanding that, you know, the whole business and everything, who do you see that's got the potential right now to go really far? There's a couple, actually. Um, I would say my number one blue chip player is uh, probably Rich Portoyella. I think he, I could easily see him in WWE not long from now. This kid has progressed so much, so far. Honestly, I, he's just a natural talent. I mean, this kid, and I think I was telling you this, Barry, he, his first match ever was in Japan. He literally yes. walked into a tryout that was happening in New Jersey by, I think it was the Wrestle One promotion. I can't remember which promotion. He walked into the tryout untrained and went into the ring and beat out every other independent guy that was there in winning the, um, the tour of Japan. <laughs> so, I mean, this kid has never had a match before. He was basically not trained, but just had enough athletic ability that he impressed 
the, um, the, the representatives from Japan so much that they brought him over to Japan, had his first match, I believe it was in Crokin Hall, was his first ever match. I mean, this doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> you don't walk off the streets into a training center with no training and end up having your first match in Japan. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy what happened with this guy. And then, to his credit, he came back here and was like, okay, well, now what? I just, you know, I just wrestled in Japan. He was over there for like two weeks. He did a bunch of matches. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, well, nobody knows me over here. I don't have the in with any company. Um, so he, through a connection, he ended up um, hooking up with Cahagas and ended up started training over at the Thunder Championship Wrestling School. And that's how I met him, was working for Thunder Championship Wrestling. And um, I saw him, I was like, I got to get him over to uh, Proving Grounds. And I would say he has not missed more than one week in the last three months. Every Friday, driving from Orlando, which is a couple-hour drive, to work for no money to get the in-ring experience. And um, that kid's a natural. If I've ever seen anybody that's a natural, it's him. He's going to be a star in this business. I would put money on it. So um, he was, he was other, on the show? Yeah, yeah he was he the one. With Gus De La Vega. He came out with Francisco Chiazzo. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know who you're talking about now. So, okay. Yeah, tall, tall uh, New York kid. And uh, has a fantastic attitude. And that's my other thing. For me, it's all about the attitude with these kids. Because if they come to me, they come to us with a bad attitude, they're out the door. I've, I've had a couple. I had one guy a couple weeks ago. He came two weeks in a row, came to me and wanted to know when he'd be on the main roster of FIP and that he couldn't keep coming unless he was given a, a starting date. I was like, well, <laughs> well, you have your starting date of, of packing your stuff and heading home. You know what I mean? It's just like, but Rich actually, Rich Portiella is actually the first guy from Proven Ground to be elevated to the full impact pro roster. So he started on our last show. So uh, it's kind of like I would the equivalent of going from, you know, uh, little league to the varsity team. You know what I'm saying? Where they're going to, you know, they're going to get much more experience um, at an FIP and they're going to get paid. It's it's a whole for them. It's a huge step up. So big, hey, well, big well, uh, congratulations to him. So. Well, let me ask you about uh, a couple of the other guys in the roster that we had a lot yeah. of fun watching. Your main event was a six man tag. and yep. You had uh, two younger kids who are kind of doing a gimmick where they throw the, you know, the Monopoly money or whatever out to the crowd. And they were teaming with a guy. And I say this and and I don't mean it derogatorily at all because I thought he really did a great job. The the guy that is sort of doing the Adrian Adonis, uh, very heavy set guy with bleach blonde hair. Yeah, but very heavy. So tell me the name of the three guys that I'm talking about on the heel side. Okay, so the tag team, they're financially stable. It's uh, Winston and Connor. And then the uh, the other kid is Bud Heavy. That's his name, Bud Heavy. Speaking of being heavy, he is heavy. But he is, <laughs> um, yeah, and he actually, uh, that's another guy. I would say if there's uh, Rich and Bud, Bud's going to be the next breakout star, too. And he actually is... Um, making a name for himself right now in major league wrestling. I mean, they kind of started the deal with him where he was kind of an enhancement guy, but then he started getting over so much with the crowd that they started giving him a little bit of a push. And now they call him like Philadelphia's favorite wrestler or something. He goes out and gets one of the biggest pops on the show and then pretty much gets his ass whooped. But 
I think what they're doing with him, they're kind of doing the um, one, two, three kid or Mikey Whipwreck thing where he's kind of the underdog that the fans are really behind. I think he's going to end up starting to get a, a big push there. I hope so because he absolutely deserves it. That guy can do anything. Um, the two, I would say him and this other guy, John Strange, um, that you saw, he's the guy that comes out with the, the paper plate on his face. Those two guys do not look like athletes. They do not look like they should be able to do the things that they can do. And then they get in there and Bud, absolutely. You said Adrian Adonis. That was the first thing, person I thought of when I first saw him wrestle. I said, this kid can bump like Adrian Adonis and he really can. I've seen him do the most amazing bumps, you know, into the corner, over to the floor, and just like, I mean, it just doesn't phase him one bit, you know? Um, John Strange is the other guy. Now, this guy also, I met on an indie show about a year ago, and I was like, this guy's a complete whack job. I was just sitting in the back with him, and he was, you know, I was going out to get ready to do my manager thing, and he's just sitting there talking to himself and talking to himself, mumbling, and and I'm just like, who the hell is this weirdo, man? Like, what is up with this guy, you know? And, and honestly, I didn't realize till later that night that he was actually had, tr- having a conversation with me, and I didn't even know it. And he's sitting there mumbling and mumbling and mumbling, not realizing he was talking to me. I thought he was just talking to himself. But he's, the guy is a complete weirdo. I don't know how old he is. I would assume he's in his, his 40s. I don't know. He's never told me. Kate babes me on that. But he goes out there, and he does – these unbelievable athletic moves that just shock everybody. Uh, he's the one in the match who did the moonsault from the top yeah. to the floor. And he, uh, he can do anything. It is absolutely incredible. He bounces around the ropes and flips around like a guy half his size. And, but the thing that I like, cause I'm not a flippy guy at all. I'm not like a, you know, I, I appreciate that stuff. But the thing is, he also can work. He's got the psychology down. He knows what to do and why he's doing it, and he knows when to do it. And um, if he was half his age, I would guarantee you he'd be WWE bound. Um, that's how good he is. Uh, now, at his you, age, I have no idea what he's going to do, but he's incredible, and I'm glad to have him. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you, kind of a funny story. Uh, as he was getting up on the top rope uh, to do the spot, and of course uh, Barry and I, along with uh, Dave and Bobby and Pete Lederberg, were sitting in the front row. And um, so uh, I'm not even going to spoil it by telling you who it was that did this. But so one of the guys on the other team were on the floor, uh, you know, face down. And we had been interacting with them the whole night. And he's got his hands like up around his uh, his face. And he kind of leans over to the left and he goes, you guys need to get out of that chair. <laughs> I thought it was really hilarious that he was giving us a heads That's up awesome. as the guy was getting ready to do this. But so uh, I will say, you know, you talked about the psychology of the wrestling business and how you want the guys to learn that and such. And that was one of the things, not just about the, uh, the three guys that I mentioned on the heel side, but there were other guys that really had an idea of how to work the crowd. Uh, and right. how, you know, uh, there was a, and, and I have to tell you, you know, uh, uh, Dave Flaherty and I were professional hecklers when we go to shows I and mean, <laughs> really can get some heat. And we were having a blast with the, with that, uh, that trio and the great part. And, and Barry knows this is they were given back, if not as good, better because right. they began to hammer Flaherty. Uh, and I wrote down a couple, uh, 
one of the guys said, uh, one of the young kids said, take your dentures out, old man. I can't understand you, which was just hilarious. And then he said, and he looked at him, Flaherty's wearing sandals. Uh, we want him to get into the feet, right, Barry? And he oh. says, are you wearing sandals? What kind of a man your age wears sandals? And completely <laughs> popped all of our group when he said that. That's and, awesome. And then, and then, of course, Barry, the best part was at the finish of the match, uh, the one kid, uh, what was it? Did you say his Bentley. name was ben- Bentley? Bentley is, is down on the floor, and the uh, like the Monopoly money or whatever that's part of their gimmick is kind of thrown at him. And he takes it and he's holding it up and he's he's been defeated and he's going, but this, this is what it's all about. It's all about making the money or you know something like that. So Flaherty stands over him, reaches into his pocket, and he takes out uh, a, a little uh, what they used to call a Chicago bankroll, Barry. Uh, he has like maybe a, a twenty or, or two twenties and a bunch of ones. And he goes, no, no, this is what real money's like, motherfucker. It's right here. At which point, <laughs> Barry, I slap Dave's hand. And some of the some of the bills fell out on top of the kid. Bentley then takes it, and no matter what Dave says, it was two one dollar bills. Dave's trying to convince everyone it was a couple of thousand dollar bills, but so they're two one dollar bills. Dave takes it, puts it, or the kid Bentley takes it, puts it down his tights. Okay, That's uh, and, and where where you know as you described, Sean, uh, there might be some sticky areas, and so so now Dave is like he turns and he does this slow turn. And looks at me with the "What the fuck did you just do to my my uh my bankroll?" And everyone, and I think uh, our Eric Cholminski was was nearest to uh, Barry, and he said that might be the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, just the expression on Dave's face. I really wish they had videotaped it because it was great. And <laughs> wow, awesome. Sean, we had such an awesome time at the show. I would. It was encourage- that good, Jeff. Like it was. It, yeah. You're almost underselling it because. Bentley and Flaherty, and you were involved a little bit, but I think at some point you stepped back because Dave was, David just, he was in some sort of zone with this. But the key, what I thought was incredible was you've got these young kids that, you know, that are just up and coming in the business that were, and and Dave was definitely borderline with some of his comments. He wasn't lobbing (laughs) softballs. He was laying it out. These fucking guys were giving it right back, Sean. They were there yeah. every step of the way. They did not get flustered. That made the show. It was so exciting. And I got to tell you, Bentley was such a hit with our group based off of his comments that somebody said, can you try and book him for the next fan fest? <laughs> <laughs> there you oh. go. Yeah. Uh, Sean, of course, would get a booking fee if that happens. Barely. <laughs> right, Sam, the Sam Munchnick well, gotta, of, uh, of of Port St. Lucie. Yeah. yeah, I've got to tell you guys, I definitely was getting a little nervous with the um, with that match, with the interaction, because it's one thing, you know, you always, as you know, from the promoting side of things, you start worrying about liability and stuff. And when they started, you know, doing the bumps kind of close to you guys and the flip, you know. I start panicking a little bit in the back, like, oh, God, please don't, you know, freaking, you know, collapse on one of our fans or something. You don't take a bump on them and stuff. And and uh, we actually, I'll tell you, it's um, I've actually had to address this, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. We've actually had a couple incidents where a fan and one of our guys, it's gotten a little bit too intense, um, the interaction. And uh, we actually had a crazy incident happen uh, about six weeks ago where one of our wrestlers really crossed the line. And this is the thing, again, when I give my pre, when we do our pre-show talk in our training session, 
I always tell the guys, um, you know, don't touch the fans, don't get in their faces. Um, you know, be careful. You don't, you know, take a bump into the fans. And one of our other big things is one of our rules is no cheap heat. And you guys know what you, I'm assuming you guys oh, know yeah. what cheap heat is in the business, you know, and I explain it to the, the kids that, the difference between heat and cheap heat, like we want you to do what they like Bentley and Connor were doing and bud as far as interacting with the fans and getting heat. And like you said, that was, that totally enhances your fun and your experience. What I don't want them doing is what this kid did a couple of weeks ago. Basically there was this old lady, older lady, I should say, I'm trying to not to insult anybody. She's an older lady in the front row with her chubby, chubby grandson okay and he started making some kind of over the line comments about the you know the 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 the, the fat kid in the front row let's put it that way and the grandmother got kind of insulted and, and said something back to him and um i'm assuming i can go a little bit blue here since we've been caught oh please we encourage right? oh, yes okay well this this kid who actually is one of my favorite guys in the business but i'm not going to say his name because he got so much heat over this, he turns to the grandmother and he says, I don't need to hear from you. Why don't you keep your mouth shut? He turns, and then he turns back and says, oh, and while you're at it, go ahead and close your knees because all I can smell is dead fish. Oh. And, um, <laughs> so, see, and if, he he, hadn't, if he hadn't said the last <laughs> line, he would have been completely yes, fine. It, it would have been fine, yeah. you know? So the the woman, you know, and again, you know, I've got a mom, I've got, you know, I've had grand, you know, I can understand why, you know, that she got offended and she got up and she said, what did you say to me? And instead of letting it go, he got right in her face and said, I'll even louder, 10 times louder. I told you your pussy smells like dead fish <laughs> at the top oh, wow. of his lungs. So she, without missing a beat, Hauls off and slaps the shit out of this kid. Boom. Okay. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I don't blame her at that point. You know what? He was in her face. You know what? You're. But this was where it really got was went too far. Was this is like a six foot four jacked up guy. This is a little tiny woman, old. You know, older lady, probably in her seventies. Um, he starts calling for security and calling for me to come out there and throw her out of the building. So how does that make him look? Okay, you've got a six foot four, 220 pound, 20 something year old athlete who just got the shit slapped out of him by a 70 something year old woman. And instead of just kind of laughing it off and going back to the ring, he starts, I need security. Somebody needs to come out and get her out of here. She put her hands on me. It just made him look like the biggest pussy on the face of the planet. Or he could have sold this In a smelling pussy, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Like if he took a nice you know, bump but, off the slap, you know. <laughs> there's some, yeah. But, you know, it just made him look like an idiot. And we got to the back. And, you know, I'm telling him, look, you know, you cross the line. You, you did the complete opposite of what I tell you to do. You don't, we don't do cheap heat here. We want the fans to have a good time and keep coming back. You cross the line. You need to apologize to her. He refused to apologize. She ends up, again, we're in Pasco County, Florida. Okay. For those that listen that don't understand, this is like being in the backwoods of West Virginia. Okay. That's, the, that's what Pasco, Florida, you know, County, Florida is. 
So she calls her family, quote unquote family. And the next thing you know, we've got a parking lot full of rednecks and pickup trucks wanting to fight the entire roster at our show. So (laughs) picture me out there. I'm out there, you know, in the middle of this giant mess, trying to calm down all these hillbillies who are threatening to come back with rifles and shoot the place up and kill every. That was a quote, by the way. We're going to get our guns and we're going to come back. We're going to kill every single one of you. That was a quote I got from one of them. So it was a giant mess. (laughs) And, you know, that's what happens, though, when you let things get out of control. And that's why, again, you know, I hit home with these guys every week. This is why you don't cross the line, because we don't ever want something like that happening again. You know, I can't take it. I go, I got high blood pressure. I don't need that crap, you know. (laughs) Barry, we're rounding the turn. We're heading for home. Uh, down the home stretch we go. Let me close out by mentioning that I texted you yesterday and asked you, Barry Rose, are you familiar with the new show on FX starring Jeff Bridges, The Old Man? So familiar with the show. I have not seen an episode. But, Jeff, I will fill you in. I think you you either mentioned this to me on a phone call. Maybe it was the podcast. Could have even been text. Done with Stranger Things. Finished that up last week. One episode left of Bosch Legacy, which if you want to discuss, I'm there. But after Bosch Legacy and Mayans MC has wrapped up their season, Barry has wrapped up their season, I am looking for a new show starting, I think, tomorrow night. Is this the show that I'll be watching? Absolutely. Very, very impressive. Eight Point six on IMDb, which is a really, really good score. Uh, lots of Jeff Bridges, of course, uh, in the lead role. John Lithgow. Uh, and Ooh. we also have Amy Brenneman, who was in Heat and an NYPD Blue. Uh, she's in it. So there are some names that you definitely recognize. So here's the basic plot summary. Uh, the dude, Jeff Bridges, plays a retired CIA uh, specialist. Uh, who is uh, living uh, sort of off the grid, if you will, when I'll just say certain assets come looking for him and he has to basically go on the run. Also, an additional thumbs up, Barry, for the fact that he has two dogs. So there's a dog component to the show. So for you dog owners, that's a solid plus. Now, so that recommendation on FX. Uh, I have watched two episodes. Uh, the, I think it comes out Thursday nights. So I've watched two episodes that have been released by FX. I really enjoyed it. So Barry, tell us now, Bosch Legacy. What did you think? Oh, are so you a lot sick of, of the daughter yet? No. So this is these are my thoughts, Jeff. This is going to be a little controversial, I believe, especially for you. How dare you? Uh, when we get into it. So let let. Let's look at it from a basic standpoint. The show is not as good as it was when it was Bosch. Bosch Legacy, in my opinion, is not as good. Am I enjoying it? I am. Would I say it's at the same level? It's not. So here are the differences to me. He has taken, in my opinion, this is Titus Welliver, who who is Bosch. He is now, I believe, the executive producer, sometimes he's he's taken over the show in a sense. And the show, he's become extremely boring. As a character, he's extremely boring. When he was a cop, it seems like he was in a lot more situations. He was breaking rules left and right. Now that he's no longer a cop and he's a private investigator, 
He's extremely boring. He doesn't really do anything. The show does not appear, in my opinion, to be centered around him any longer. It's centered around the daughter, who I can clearly tell you're not a fan of, and and Honey, who is played by uh, Mimi Rogers. And so let, let's talk about the daughter first off. The, I, I actually like her storylines. We have seen a, a clear arc of her being a little kid in the early episodes to her being a police officer now. And she's a, a boot. She's a rookie. But she's doing a really good job. I, I got to say, uh, I, I really like her. Honey, I like as well. She's doing, a I guess, a good job. But I almost feel like they're focusing too much on the women and not enough on Bosch. And with that, he's missing. It's almost like there's a lot of him staring in the air now as jazz music plays. And there's this kind of and that's what you see. Dexter was very similar when when Michael C. Hall, who played the titular character. Good use first of the time word titular. Yeah. I think that's the first time we've ever done that. When he when he played the character of Dexter, and he that's all he was doing. What a great show! And then he became the executive producer, director, writer, etc. And then it became all about Dexter, but it wasn't good. It was it had taken a a, a tumble. I kind of feel this is where Bosch legacy is now. Jay Edgar made an appearance. I believe it was on episode seven. And I got to tell you, I popped. I'm like, fucking Jay Edgar's back. He's back, right? It was like a three-minute segment. Didn't go anywhere. Same, and same with Crate and Barrel. I, and I fucking love Crate and Barrel, right? There they are. But they, they, they're not doing anything. I, I, I'll watch the show. I still like the show. But if I'm comparing it to Bosch, it's not even close. So I, uh, I will disagree with you. I um, progressively became more and more annoyed with the daughter uh, because it just seemed like it was sort of the let's it's almost like the old, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? Jack Bauer 24, where at some point every episode, the daughter was in danger. There was the one ridiculous episode of 24 where his daughter ran into like a mountain lion or some shit like that. And this one was like, uh, oh, uh, when's the last time you talked to your daughter, Harry? Well, that was about four hours ago. And then you see the daughter and there's like some tense music because she's getting ready to uh, chase after some guy. And it's just like, oh, my God, are we turning this into, you know, Harry's daughter gets in some sort of uh, – situation where dad needs to come rescue her. I'm sorry. I don't buy that actress and that character as a beat cop at all. I think it's completely unfucking realistic. Uh, I always have liked Mimi Rogers uh, and I love, I really like her character. I do have a question. Sure. So in this new season is Mimi Rogers still the head of the firm or is she working for the older black guy? First off, that guy's fantastic. I don't know yes. who he is, but boy, is he great. Even when he's delivering bad news, which it seems like that's the majority of the time, he still has this very genteel kind of personality about him and smile on his face. I don't know who this guy is because he's got to be in his 70s. He's not a kid, so he's probably been acting for years. Whoever he is, he's fantastic. With that, I would have to assume that she's working for this guy because he almost appears to be 
lead counsel on just about everything. It's his firm, and I would assume, yeah, based and, off uh, the conversations, that she is working for him. And, and I'm thinking maybe, you know, because the character had been shot and was out of commission for a while, right. that maybe she went to work for another lawyer's firm, you know, maybe had to close down her own firm. I don't know. But uh, good stuff. So uh, would you give it a would you give it a recommendation still, though? Yeah, so I still would. And I think a lot of it is it look, it definitely has the same vibe and tone of the original Bosch. I, I again, I find his character now boring. You make good points about the daughter. I, I think what I like and obviously Bosch legacy is supposed to be his daughter. I mean, this is the the future of Bosch in a lot of ways. But the other person I don't like is I don't like the new guy that he's working with. I don't oh, the the, uh, the surveillance expert. Yeah, I, See, just, I like that guy. Yeah, I just I, I yeah. like the old guys. I just find this uh, I find him I find him a character put into a TV show to to get people talk. And I realize that's what the name of the game is. At the same time, he's got this cadence of when he speaks that I, I just don't I'm not buying any of it. I don't know. I just don't I, buy it. I will any say <laughs> we had we had a uh, an appearance by a veteran actor that I haven't seen in many years. How cool is it to see William fucking Devane, man? I was like, holy shit. The first episode he came on, I've, I've liked that guy for years. Now he looks great. He yeah, looks, no, I, you know, and, yeah. uh, he plays a, uh, a billionaire that's looking for his heir. And that's kind of what sets the Here, whole, I'll, I'll blow your mind with another one, Jeff. Oh, I thought you were going somewhere else other than my mind. I was going to say, Jesus I appreciate Christ, that. But I'm, I'm, go ahead. <laughs> There's there's people in Virginia right now that are that are isolating that <laughs> and they're going to they're going to be calling us with this in the middle of the night. Uh, the woman, Ida, who plays the assistant of William Devane. Yes. Any idea where you've seen her before? Uh, you haven't out. seen her in about 30 years, 40 years. She was in Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, good call. It's I I'm going so I see her name in the credits and I'm going, how is that possible? I would recognize her. Of course I would. That's a movie that came out, you know, 36 years ago. So it's you know she's aged a little bit in 36 years. And of course John Savage on this season is yes, left. that's right, another one. Yeah, John a, a Savage, time favorite from his uh, when I first saw him in The Deer Hunter. So yeah, yeah. But, so uh, I let me say again, I like the show. It definitely is doesn't hold up to the give me more fucking crate and barrel then I'll yeah. be happy. Well, and you know maybe the one thing <laughs> I'll give you this that the show is lacking is the person that is the foil to Harry, and Absolutely. that's what uh, his his police captain what, what's his name Lance uh, you know right off the top of your head the guy was in the wire yeah yeah I don't know what his uh, name I can't remember his last name but uh, he was sort of the antagonist to Harry he was the one that was always keeping Harry in line and I don't really know this show has that so you know I will mention uh, and and then we got to wrap it up you mentioned Michael C Hall my wife is a huge fan of the writer Harlan Coben. And uh, we just got done watching on Netflix. Uh, there is a show called Safe that's based on uh, a Harlan Coben book, uh, and it's set in England. Uh, it's about a guy whose daughter goes missing, and uh, there is sort of this labyrinth pro uh, plot. It takes uh, there's like I want to say like maybe seven or eight episodes, something like that, uh, and where he's investigating uh, where his daughter is. She's not dead. Uh, but uh, she has uh, kind of disappeared, and he's uh, he's a guy who's a doctor. And what's really funny, I'll tell you this, is that uh, 
he uh, it's set in England, so he has a very pronounced British accent. And I'm listening to it, and I text I texted our buddy Greg Good, who's a huge fan of Dexter, and I went, "Holy shit, Michael C. Hall, man! I, I didn't know he had a you know that he was from Great Britain. He's got a British accent." And then I went and after I texted him that, I'm like looking him up on uh, on Google or whatever. And he's, of course, American. So I text him as well. Apparently, I'm a fucking idiot because I didn't know that that he was playing a British guy. And I'm sure uh, anybody from uh, the UK uh, who watches this show is going to sit there and say, his fucking accent is horrible. That's a really bad UK accent, by the way. So, Well, here's the crazy part. Titus Welliver and when when I started watching Bosch, I had no idea where I'd seen this guy, but I definitely recognized him. Turns out Deadwood. He, well, you know him from Deadwood. I knew yeah. him from Sons of Anarchy, where he played an Irishman from Ireland uh, with a really heavy, thick Irish accent. Yeah. And if you would have told me that this guy was not Irish, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. So anyway, on that note, a couple of show suggestions there. Uh, you about ready for the old go home, my friend? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So on behalf of our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, out in the city by the bay, my co-host, Barry Rose, Plymouth Meeting PA, I am Jeff Bowdrin. Other times, not always, but occasionally when people refer to me as the booker. So I will tell you that Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the By God Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take us home, please.